71% of employees are hiding the truth about their well-being to their employers because of this issue around the response. The mm. stigma is so severe that employers are nervous to talk to employees about their well-being. You're very welcome back to All In Business, your weekly business fix here on Joe, backed by AIB. On today's show, we'll be talking about how to build a powerhouse board, who should be on yours and why. We'll be asking our panel of experts. We've got Maura Quinn, the CEO of the Institute of Directors, and Anne Hunt, the founder and CEO of Chasing Returns, a risk management platform used by hundreds of thousands of brokers around the world. And today's Trailblazer co-created a mental health app that's been hoovering up awards and funding recently. It's Keep Happy founder Amy Louise Carton. Now, you may have noticed that that's an all-female lineup in honour of this Sunday's International Women's Day. And to keep up with all our shows, why not hit subscribe to get the full episode on podcast and YouTube each week. And you will, of course, also find us on social media. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter with the hashtag AllInBusiness. Joe presents All In. Together with AIB, backing Irish business. So Maura and Anne, you both know a thing or two about boards. And the very first question I have to ask you is this. What is the usual way you find that people are appointed onto boards? Is it a case of people ask their mates? Yeah, unfortunately it is. Um, I mean, I think that certainly from the IOD's perspective, we would ask that people be much more transparent and have a proper process around it. But I think the reality of it is people tend to to fish in the pond that they know best. So people tend to uh, see who do we know. And, and it's really interesting because if you were appointing a financial controller for your company, you wouldn't actually kind of talk to your mates around the table and say, do we know another accountant? You would be hiring a recruitment company or going online or whatever it might be. So I think it's unfortunate it is still very much. I think about 95% of board appointments are still made informally, as we call it. Why do you think that is? Is it that people are looking subconsciously maybe even to surround themselves with yes men and women? Or is it just maybe a natural human trait that you feel more comfortable asking someone you already know? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that probably um, historically boards were very much populated by people who knew each other very well. And obviously that creates all kinds of risks in terms of the potential for groupthink and people feeling un Un, unable to challenge each other. Um, so I think that's probably still very prevalent. Um, I think it's changing. Um, I would argue it's probably not changing quickly enough. Um, it's changing in particular spaces that are very regulated, like the financial services area that are regulated by the central bank because they demand a very open and rigorous process and people have to go f- through fitness and probity in order to be kind of appointed to those boards. Um, in PLC boards, it's opening up. Um, in fact, in state boards, which is kind of interesting, they're actually now blazing the trail in terms of the transparency of the process as to how people are appointed. So it's kind of interesting. Historically, people would have felt that state boards, um, that there was a huge element of cronyism and, and nepotism in terms of people being appointed. And now there's a very open and transparent process. So they are actually leading the way. And when it comes to fees, that must surely affect things. Like obviously, if you want to maybe get on a state board, when it comes to cronyism and nepotism, you might maybe know or think that this is a, a good deal. This is a sweet deal to have for a long time with you know very little work and, and a nice fee. Would it be easier if there were no fees? How do you think... I think, I mean, I actually kind of have an expression in mind in response to that of you pay peanuts and you get monkeys. Um, And in fact, you know, the fees that are paid to members of state boards are extraordinarily low, extraordinarily Mm. low. I mean, people are being asked to maybe attend 12 board meetings and committee meetings a year for about kind of, in some cases, 8,000 a year before tax. Mm. So go figure, um, you know, what that looks like. Um, even in private boards, the fees are not huge now because the demands in terms of the responsibilities um, and, you know, ensuring that what we call CPD, that you continue your professional development is now so huge. It's not something you do for the money alone. I mean, the, the most highly paid boards or enumerated boards are boards of PLCs. So you get paid a fee for being on the board and then a fee perhaps if you're on a committee. But even still, and it's all taxable, um, if you were actually to net that down for the contribution. So I don't believe people primarily now go on boards because of the fees. Mm. Um, And in fact, you shouldn't because it compromises your independence if you actually do that. So normally it is the case that people 
um, have perhaps a parallel independent income and they do this because they're interested in it. But there are a whole lot of people who are not interested in going on boards for a whole variety of reasons. Fair enough. Well, Anne, before I ask you your opinions on boards and many other things, I want to ask you about your company first. Tell us a bit about Chasing Returns. Right. So Chasing Returns is uh, about five years old now and it is um, behavioural analytics for traders. Right. So what that means is, um, so my background, well, a long time ago was computer science. That was my qualification. So I'm a technical background, but I spent 10 years on Wall Street with JP Morgan working on the trading floor. So actually, the thing I know best, I suppose, is trading. Mm. Um, and uh, retail traders, which are people that are not trading professionally, working for banks or hedge funds or trading houses, um, there's like 10 million retail traders in the world um, and they're mostly losing money, right? Um, and they're losing money because, um, A, it's a singularly difficult kind of career to have, um, particularly if you're doing it part-time. Uh, but mostly people lose money both professionally and in retail because of behaviour, right? Because our emotions often drive our decisions when we're under stress, which is what the financial markets do to you, right? So our trading analytics platform is able to measure people's different reactions under different stress points and help them to adjust their behavior. So that's what we do. Um, so yeah, so we've got about 60,000 traders now uh, actively using our software and we are measuring month on month improvements in behavior. Um, and we're looking to grow and expand that now. And I know you were saying to me earlier um, that, you know, a, a big part of your story you feel is that you were an older founder than maybe the norm that is expected. Um, Slightly. <laughs> and, and in terms of the episode theme of boards, I wonder how that affects you when it comes to uh, the need for a board, what kind of board you're going to have, your feelings on a board, that maybe you might have different views on that than somebody who is setting up their first company at 23 yeah, So my experience is, is, is obviously completely different because... Mm. Um, I wasn't, re I wasn't a C-level exec before. I didn't have a giant network of um, friends that were on boards, right? Mm. Um, in fact, I had a giant ne network of entrepreneurs, uh, friends who had set up their own small businesses. Um, and, you know, my board is as big as my staff, which is kind of cracked when you think about it, right? Mm. But um, so my board grew out of my investors, which isn't, again, the perfect way to set up a company because in theory you want your board to be independent and, mm -hmm. and all of that. But um, yeah, so um, anybody who invests in a startup obviously is very keen to be involved in, in the growth of the business um, and the advisory part of the business. And typically the larger shareholders end up on the board. So that's how mine evolved over time. Um, it's changing um, as I grow and now I have quite a big network in my industry. Mm. And so I suppose my, as of necessity and how you raise money in Ireland, you know, my board is uh, all male, um, angel investors. Um, you know, I'm very lucky that they come from different backgrounds, I suppose. So they're all bringing something to the table. Um, but I'd love to have a board that was 40% women and was more international and had a little bit more of, you know, where my business is growing in the future. So I see it as something, another part of the mm. business that has to be grown, I guess. Well, I'm, there's one thing I'm interested in, because Maura, you mentioned earlier there about, um, you know, the amount of time and commitment that's expected in, in return for very little in some cases. And, and I'm wondering for, you know, you're not uh, a state institution, you're not a massive corporate, um, you're that classical, you know, entrepreneurial, you, you've set up your own business. What have you found that you've come to, to need or expect from, from uh, board members? What is the expectation and what are, they, what, what, what are they expected to deliver, I suppose? So I think with, a, with each of my board members, everybody brings something different, right? So A, they've all brought money, so which is fantastic for a startup, right? So, um, and they've brought money to the table either because they knew me from my past or, you know, I'd worked with them previously or they were interested in the business or, or for whatever reason. So... Um, all of my board members are personally invested as well as financially invested mm -hmm. in the success of the company. So, you know, I have one of them that's a really strong technical CTO who's been incredibly successful in these other startups. So he brings his technical experience. You know, I've got somebody from banking that brings accounting experience. I have somebody who knows the business who, br who brings that, right? Um, my board don't get paid. So they do this actually 
out of the goodness of their hearts, right, to help me bring the business along. So, um, you know, and I've had, you know, offers of people who would like to be on the board and would like to get paid. I think when you're a startup and you're trying to get going, every penny is sacred. Mm. Um, and there is thankfully in Ireland a great network of people who want to give back or they want to pay it forward. And they're very comfortable working for a number of years, helping grow a business until we get to that point that, excuse me, that we can start looking at fees and... Mm you know, bringing that more professional side to the board. And I suppose, Anne, as you said, your um, your board <coughs> and your investors are, you know, one and the same group. Yes. But when that's not the case, um, if there's a more traditional formal VC arrangement in place, Maura, do you think maybe it would serve um, to keep things more independent if a VC was to appoint the board rather than the founder? Uh, um, I think no. the quick answer to that <laughs> is no. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's... it's uh, a position that a lot of HPSUs find themselves in, that basically, you know, the, the, the VC basically appoints somebody to the board. Mm. Um, and I think there is a very clear danger that essentially they are there to look after their own interests and mm. not, think, you know, to look after the business interests. I mean, it's interesting. Um, it's broader, I think, than just kind of startups, though, because, you know, there is an ongoing debate as to whether board members in large PLCs should have skin in the game and should have basically, you know, shareholdings of their own. Mm. Because there are some people that would be of the view that that gives them an extra interest in the success of the business. But then there are other people who would say that perhaps that, in fact, it can change their the independence of their view and their advice. So... Um, I think it's something that you need to be very cognizant of. But it is about independence. Um, mm. And I think it's always challenging for startups because money is so tight. Um, but I think in Hans' case, what's great is that she has a board. Um, and, and I think that's really important because a lot of people, um, you know, it, it, who start businesses themselves um, understandably are very territorial about that business. It is their baby. Um, and they don't really want external people coming in to that business. Um, so I think once you're open to having external people, I think it's really, really helpful. And obviously, if you can get people of the calibre that you've outlined to, 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 to be on your board on a pro bono basis, it's fantastic. And of course, another challenge that we can't help but address is the big pink tax paying elephant in the room in that the challenge of getting diversity onto boards. And I have to say, I love that I'm sitting here saying this as a, a, as a woman <laughs> with two women. Um, and just in case any men out there feel shortchanged, uh, let me point out that we were to have Bobby Healy of Mana Aero uh, with us, but he sadly couldn't make it last minute. Uh, we'll see you next time, Bobby. And Anne very kindly stepped in. So there would have been perfect diversity. But anyway, um, I digress. The challenge of diversity on boards, things have gotten better, obviously, but I imagine they're not where they need to be. Yeah, I think we're coming from a very low base, um, you know, and I'm a glass half full kind of person. Mm. So I, I actually do think things have got better. I mean, you know, the Institute of Directors, at one point, we had 7% of our membership were women. It's now 30. So it has grown very dramatically. And we particularly have a very high percentage of women members who have done the Chartered Director program. So they're kind of qualifying themselves to the most senior level. So I think it's getting better. Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of these people who rail against the idea that diversity is all about gender. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's the common view. Um, and I think it's a very easy silo to look at diversity. I think diversity is much broader than that. Um, you know, if you have, and the best analogy that I could give you is if you have a, a board made up of chartered accountants and six of them are men and six of them are women, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of diversity on that board because essentially they view the business in exactly the same way. They're going to be looking at the bottom line, not necessarily thinking about the customer, not necessarily thinking about the cyber risks, um, and there's a whole plethora of other things that they may not. So you are really thinking about diversity in its broadest sense in terms of gender, age, geographical location, ability. Mm -hmm. Skill set is critically important. Um, and I think that, you know, when the crash happened here, there was a rush to having all accountants and all risk people and all governance people on the boards um, of a whole range of, of companies. And, and lots of people forgot about the customer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and thought, who's actually asking the question about what's the impact on the customer here? So I think we really need to work really hard at the diversity piece rather than just focusing exclusively on the gender piece. Mm. And it's interesting there that you mention, mention accountants because I suppose uh, diversity in all its um, different formats is 
more and less important depending on the industry that you're in and depending on the need for different ways of thinking. Um, I'm wondering what, how you found that in, in fintech, Anne, because um, in, in Web Summit, where I work when I'm not here, um, I have found that particular industries, sometimes the diversity is not there. When I yeah. first arrived in Web Summit and my portfolio, my first portfolio was SaaS. And, you know, we feel very passionately about diversity, not just gender, ethnicity, et cetera, as well. And I remember with my manager one day saying, the diversity in SaaS, is, it's just not there. It's not. I can't pull it from a stone. Whereas in fintech, where I expected to see very little diversity, it things are not actually that bad in fintech. There are an awful lot of women like yourself. Have you found that to be no, the case? I, I have, actually. And it's interesting because I started my career in JP Morgan and... I think, and I was in New York for most of it, I think three, you know, colleges provided all the staff. Like it was Harvard, mm. Stanford and a few other people. Don't mind women, don't mind age. Like it, it's, it was so undiverse. It was just absolutely bonkers. Um, but yeah, I think, so fintech is interesting because, um, and, and there is a lot of young people that come out and try and disrupt so it's got the, it's definitely got the, I, I was at a conference in Asia actually last year and there was one of the, I mean, it was just a retail bank was given a talk about, uh, in fact, the talks about crypto or something. But one of the things they said was every senior manager in the company, right, who they were all a certain age profile, had to have a deputy who was a millennial, right? And right. so, and that person, and it was the, it was the number two, she was a Chinese woman, she gave the talk and she said, well, I, I shadow this person mm -hmm. because we're trying to be a disruptive, you know, retail yeah. bank or whatever. So, you know, that's a pretty massive step for a mm -hmm. company to take. Um, but I think because fintech is so ripe for disruption, um, they're more, I think, eager to try and push the boat a little bit to make things happen. Um, but I, I find, you know, I know qu quite a few female founders, but... You know, I've never pitched to a woman. I've never sold to a woman. So, you know, it's still not perfect. Right. Mm. So when I when I look at my clients who are the big retail brokers, um, there are there, there is, you know, the odd woman on the board. But that's it. Mm. It really still it, the power is still very much male dominated, white male dominated, let's face it. Mm. Um, but I think in the fintechs and the startups that are coming up, it's great. Like when I set up Chasing Returns, now I had a lot of experience of running global teams and it's like, you know, people say, how do you hire in Ireland and whatever? Well, I don't. I just hire, right? So, you know, we people working for Brazil. We've currently somebody in France, somebody in London. So uh, you can be global in fintech. So mm -hmm. you're not stuck with one pool um, and you get that diversity then much faster and much easier, I think. Um, and in terms of securing more diversity on boards, uh, that that um, story you told there, Anne, about the everyone's number two had to be a millennial. Um, in a way, I guess that's a quota, or it's a you know it's a it's a pro affirmative action quota. I'm interested for both of you to see what you think about that. Should should there be enforced quotas to bring diversity up to where it needs to be, or is that the wrong way to go about it? I it's, that's really difficult, but I, I loved that example because it's almost like a mentor concept mm. where, you know, you pick somebody that you're going to bring in and bring up, um, but in an open minded manner that, you know, they've got a lot to bring to the table as a younger person that, that you don't have. So it's a kind of a two way street there. Um, you know, I read something last week about Iceland and it said, uh, uh, if you don't have 40 percent women on the board, you can now be fined. Right. And as much as I hate quotas, I was so happy to read that. It's like, well, if that's how it has to be, mm. then it does make change happen faster. And it's, but it's not perfect. So. And what do you think about that, Maura, in terms of quotas? Is a target better than a quota? Does it feel less like a noose around the neck? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, this is an argument that I have all of the time with my own kind of friends and peer group, and we all have very disparate views on it. Personally, I'm for targets rather than quotas. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I think that, you know, targets have to be measured. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the, there are a number of organizations, both the 30 percent club here and, and building better business who are doing really great work in terms of really putting a focus on this. Um, I worked within the UN system, <laughs> which is riven by quotas, riven by quotas um, for a long period of my career. 
Um, and, you know, I, I really saw how quotas can become totally misdirected in terms of, you know, you had to have somebody who was from a particular South American country and they had to be of a particular gender and, they, you know, all of that. Uh, and, and, and regardless of their capacity to do the job, um, I think it does personally um, a disservice to have somebody appointed to a board if mm. they don't have the capacity and the expertise um, but they have the right gender. But they or, have, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think it is really important. And, but equally, I think it's really important that there's a critical mass of women on boards as well. So kind of appointing the token woman mm. to a board to be able to tick a box to say you've now got a woman on the board is not appropriate either. Because I think if, if in order for the dynamic to change around the table, you have to have a critical mass of, one, of women because the discussion changes. Mm. Um, and women challenge things in a very different way than men do. Um, and I think women are very uh, much more open to asking what sometimes can be perceived as the idiot question, as mm. in, I don't understand that. Can you take it, run it by me again? Or has anybody thought about they're less kind of stereotyped that mm. way, whereas men tend to be much more reluctant to ask those kind of questions. So I, I personally um, and the IOD's perspective is as well that we're we're for targets and not quotas. And I want to bring you back to something you said a, a few answers ago about, uh, you know, diversity is much more than gender, because I know that there's a statistic in one of your IOD reports about um, boards being in Ireland being 97% Caucasian. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, when it comes to groupthink, that's a problem. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's probably, you know, an indication of where we are as a society, because we have become much more diverse um, ethnicity from an ethnic point of view. But in terms of I think that that hasn't, if you like, filtered through all of the way as of yet. Um, so, you know, for instance, the generation of, of men and women who will be coming from different ethnic backgrounds um, haven't kind of, if you like, grown up through companies and got to that point. I think it will come in time. I don't think there's an aversion to doing it. I think it's just probably... Um, a societal thing. But it's interesting um, if you look at the UK, which is a much more ethnically diverse country for a very longer period of time, there isn't much evidence of ethnicity um, in terms of kind of, you know, balance and, and, and diversity on boards there. So one would hope here that it will come. Hmm. Um, but I think it's something that we do need to watch. And, and I suppose having spent a decade on Wall Street and then come back to Ireland, you must have seen both sides of that coin. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, uh, there was no diversity in New York um, in terms of... Really? I thought you were going to say the opposite. No, I thought you were going to say... Not in the company right. I was in. Not in the company I was in. Right. That's really interesting. Not. No, because if you weren't from a top college oh, okay. and if you look at the diversity there, it's, it's very, very weak. Yeah. Or it was. I mean, this is back in the 90s, right? Yeah. Um, one would hope it's, it's a lot different now. Yeah. Um, but the, one of my biggest eye-openers when I came back was how many women there were in tech. Mm. in Ireland relative to where I come from, actually. Yeah. And then when I talk, when I go back and go back, I, I studied uh, computer science at Trinity. And when I was there, um, there was about a third of the class were women. Mm. And at some point in the last 10 years, there was zero women. Mm. And they've had to have a massive push to build that back up. So at some levels, you know, the numbers are getting better, mostly, I think, from uh, people moving to Ireland. But our STEM and that whole getting women yeah. to, to be in the sciences has a, a long way to go. Has, it really has mm. a long way to go. And I, I want to bring you back to something you said a few answers ago as well. Um, you know, all of your board members uh, have skin in the game. Yes. Uh, financially in your company, some are mates, some aren't. Um, and obviously the function of a board being to uh, look under rocks, as they say, and ask difficult probing questions that must cause some tension, especially among mates, does it? No, because my mates are the kind of mates that will ask you whatever they want to ask you. Right. Like, I, and that's I, why you're chosen for the board. Yes. So. And, and actually, you know, I, 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 one thing I'm not is I don't need or want anybody, a yes person around mm. me. You can't be successful if people don't challenge you. So as much as my board is amazing, I also have like a really strong network of um of advisors, none of whom get paid except for the odd pint, right? Um, incredible people around town who you can pick up the phone when something's going on and go, you know, I need help, uh, you know, dealing with VC or whatever it is, right? Um, but I always pick the people who will go, you know, what are you at, right? Because mm. that's how, yeah, that's, you know, as an entrepreneur, you can't, you can't be a yes person. You're not going to be successful. Mm. So, no, there's, they'll ask me whatever they need to ask me. <laughs>
I'm sure that's the way you want it. And that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're pretty, yeah, it's all on the table. Okay. And I'd say, I'd say that's that dynamic. um, Obviously, you, you you know, it's something you're quite happy with. Maybe other people wouldn't be as happy with it, but they have to kind of like it or lump it um, more uh, in fintech at the moment with the new rules that the central bank brought in about accountability. Do you think there is uh, that tension that I mentioned, maybe not in Anne's, with Anne's board, but certainly with, with boards in fintech companies around the country as they adjust to this kind of new dynamic? I think there has to be tension in every board. It mm-hmm. actually has to be because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, if you're an executive in a company, you're there to perform. You know, you've you've agreed a strategy with the board. They've approved it. They've set you, you know, on your sale, if you like, and you have to deliver that. And if you don't deliver that, you have to be held accountable. I mean, that's the reality of it. Mm. Um, And you have to be up for that. Um, And so it's not a role that suits everybody because it is very performance driven. Um, And and sometimes things will work and sometimes things won't. And and you need a board that is supportive of that and acknowledging of mistakes that are made, but who will also, if you like, back you to go back and do it a different way. So, you know, it's a kind of a balance between a board being critical um, but challenging as well as at the same time. But it's really, really important that they do that. Mm. Um, and it's really important as an executive, you understand. And I think sometimes where, where it runs into difficulty is that the executive don't understand that the board is there to challenge you and to ask you the hard questions and to second guess you. Um, and sometimes, you know, we as executives, because we've we know the nuts and bolts of the operation. You know, we we have great detailed knowledge. We can be a bit territorial about, well, we're bringing the strategy to the board because we understand the business best and, and the board members don't understand the business best. So what would they know anyway? Mm. You have to be up for that um, and, and see it as um, that you actually have to st- sort of gain a level of independence yourself that you're not just bringing your plan or your idea to the board, that you have to sort of almost walk away from your executive function and become a director Mm -hmm. in terms of, is this really going to work in the best interest of the company? So it's, you know, it's a difficult mix. And some people are better at it than others. And some board members are better at it than others. I mean, some board members are very good at providing challenge in a way that is not confrontational, um, that kind of assists you to relook and revisit and be open mm. to that. Um, and some people are not. And do you think maybe there should be more legislative action taken to ensure that accountability from boards or where would you like to see it going, broadly that's, speaking? That's an interesting question. Um, and we are where we are at the moment. I mean, I think that, you know, when the crash happened here, particularly in the, the you know, the pillar banks and in the large regulated entities, um, the pendulum has now swung very far the other side. Um, And I think we have to all take responsibility as to why that happened. Um, But I think there's, you know, there's also a challenge as well that if you are operating in a very regulated environment, that your focus is on meeting that regulation and it's about compliance all the time rather than actually how are you going to drive the business strategically. Um, And I think certainly for a lot of boards in in the regulated space now, they spend a lot of their time as board members ensuring that they are compliant and that they're meeting the regulations and perhaps the sort of driving the business on piece is less Mm. focused on. And that's a pity because you actually have to be doing that as well. Um, But, you know, we've seen regulation in every sector, in the charity sector, um, the state board sector. You know, it was always there to some degree in the PLC sector. I think regulation is inevitable. Um, Mm. And, and, you know, regulation is really not a problem um, if, if you're not doing anything wrong. Um, you know, it, it, it's a roadmap for you. Um, I don't believe that self-regulation is, is the right way from a governance point of view. I think there has to be some level of kind of control. Forced from the yeah. outside. Yeah. yeah. OK. Well, Maura and Anne, thank you so much for that. Do not go anywhere. We'll be back to you in just a few minutes for your one to watch. The Who or What has caught their eye in Irish business and why? After struggling with mental illnesses, my next guest decided to set up her own mental health app. Her company, Keep Appy, has been winning awards since then, raising funding and attracting the attention of Melinda Gates. Our Trailblazer interview is Amy Louise Carton. So, Amy Louise, tell us a little bit more about Keep Appy to get us started, because it's had quite the history to get to this point. Yeah. 
So the background behind Keep Happy actually has a kind of a twofold approach. Obviously, there is my story with my suicide attempt and my recovery where I identified the gap in the market for a wellness app that acted as more than just something that was meditation orientated or single featured, something that became a gym for everyone. But there was also a group of students in Trinity at a similar time who were developing the very, very early stages of a wellness app that was more corporatized. It was a B2B product. It was more focused on tracking employee behaviors and giving that data to employers. And I had the fortune to join this team uh, just to try learn about wellness apps and to try gain my own skills so I could develop my own product. And it just ended up that all of the students who hadn't really finished the, like there was more of a project uh, that they were using to get grades and things. They ended up uh, all leaving. They went to do Erasmuses or masters or work. And I was just so lucky that I was in a position that I was able to take on the app then and kind of, I gutted it. I changed pretty much everything about it and built the app that I had envisioned using the name Keep Appy with the amazing support of the people behind Enactus Ireland, which is a huge organization that supports social enterprises with Trinity College backing us. And there was just so much support from the business school and now from Dogpatch Labs that we've been able to create this product that has really had such an evolution as you described. And so from that time that you more or less inherited an app in its infancy, um, what a fortunate position for someone to find themselves in when they want to create a wellness app. From that point until now, tell us about that evolution. Mm. What does Keep Appy do now? Well, I didn't really get an app in its infancy. Unfortunately, I had to rebuild the whole thing, mm. which uh, with my co-founder, Will Ben Sims, we started about a year ago. And we rebuilt, we from scratch built this app called Keep Appy. And it's a 10 featured product. So there's 10 preventative wellness tools within the app from journaling to goal setting to gratitude diary, period tracking, everything. And the idea is that you can take control of your mental health just like you would with your physical health in a gym. Because when you go to the gym, you don't really just use one piece of equipment. You do cardio, you do weights, you do a little bit of everything. And that's what Keep Happy aims to do. It aims to equip you with the tools to protect yourself. And at our core, we have a vital tracker. So what that does is it tracks the eight vitals that most impact your daily well-being. So let me ask you, I'm kind of turning the tables here. Like, do you know why you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Like... Would I you do not. Know? Why do I wake up on the wrong side so, like, of the bed? This, this is, is such a loaded question. Why I know, do I wake up on the wrong I side know, of the bed? But this is a question that so few people can answer. Mm. And I couldn't answer until I started tracking everything. So whether it's sleep, whether it's exercise, whether it's water. Mm. Water is one of the biggest triggers of low mood. Or dehydration is one of the biggest triggers of low mood. So by being able to track all these things, we can figure out our trigger points and help ourselves. So it's a lot more than a, a bad night's sleep. Exactly. <laughs> and... Um, Look, this is a business show, so I'm not going to uh, get you to tell me every the finer points of your, your <laughs> mental health history from the time you were born right up until mm -hmm. now, um, Amy Louise. But obviously it's a mental health app, so it would um, we'd be doing it a disservice not to get into your own story, mm -hmm. complicated as it is. Tell us a little bit about, um, for, for people who may not know, you found yourself a few years ago um, on the top of a bridge outside your house. Mm -hmm. Not in a good place. Yeah, so there's a very clear distinction that I need to discuss before I talk about my story, that the, we have two concepts that the world keeps confusing as a result of the stigma around mental health. There's mental illness, which one in four of society has. I have a borderline personality disorder and I have PTSD. But then there's mental health, which is something we all have. Mm -hmm. So I have mental illnesses that were undiagnosed for years. I suffered in silence alone, as many people unfortunately do. In fact, two in three people suffering from a mental illness will never ever seek help, according to the World Health Organization. So I was one of those two and three for far too long. And that did lead me up onto the Dundrum Lewis Bridge. Uh, I keep joking, it's not a very great, it isn't a great place to go because it's not uh, high enough. Mm. So a lot of people tease me being like, you're not even that effective at trying these things. Um, this is a very morbid joke, but I, I really reached this awful, awful place and I just couldn't see a way out. Mm. And that was when I called a helpline and I didn't want to be saved. I really, 
I try to explain this to people and they're like, but you must have if you called them. And the only reason I called them was so that my parents would have, would see the number on my phone when they found it the next day mm -hmm. because I wanted them to know I had tried. Right. And then the helpline volunteers started asking me about my dog and the rest is history. Which, of course, is presumably a trick of the trade, you know, ask her about I know. something she really likes, ask her about her dog. I um, know. No coincidence, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, the Amy Louise that you are now compared mm -hmm. to the Amy Louise that you were then, mm -hmm. what's different? I say everything and I cannot say that with more emphasis. Mm -hmm. the, the person I was then... Um, not only was my health in a poor state because I had no control of it, my physical, mental health, I had no control of my mental health and my mental illnesses more importantly, but my career path had been completely driven by this dream to achieve as opposed to be happy. And now when I look at Keep Happy, I'm, I'm driven, I'm so ambitious, I'm so determined to achieve, but I'm also focused on doing what's best for myself at the same time. And I know that when I work on Keep Happy, I know I'm able to create change every day. And that's kind of created this confidence, this self-awareness. It's built me up to be a much stronger person than I was then. In terms of creating change, um, I keep saying I'm not going to draw you into these, you know, <laughs> heavy conversations about... I love the big conversations. A suicide attempt, or now I'm going to get you to talk about the government. Um, so yeah. I, I am going to get you to go mm -hmm. there, if you don't mm -hmm. mind. Um, creating change obviously be hoping an app like Keep Happy would do that. Mm -hmm. Is an app like Keep Happy going to be enough, do you think, in a country with the mental health resources that we have, mm -hmm. them being precious little, shall we say? Precious little is a yeah. very good description. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this about me, but my background is politics. I was on a mission I to not. go into the EU. I did a master's, a, a double master's in politics. Mm. I was going to go into the EU. I was going to create systemic change across the world. That was my dream. I, I really believed in a top-down approach where governments could create change. And then I saw the realities of governments. And that's not to say that governments can't create change. It's just that they're slightly slower moving. And, and that's mm. understandable. And I think that's why I became so fascinated with Keep Appy as a social enterprise, because we are a social enterprise. And we are for profit, so there is a bit of a difference within the Irish understanding of what social enterprises means. But we are for profit, but we are definitely for impact. Mm. So when we started creating a product like this, we were like, how can we speed up the government's approach to mental health and mental illness? How could we raise awareness about these issues quicker, create a ground up approach, have a social movement, create social wide change and acceptance for being mentally ill, for having mental health, for celebrating mental health, for celebrating mental illness. I'm a much more empathetic person and understanding person because of my mental illnesses. And it's a superpower. So let's celebrate those things. So while we are creating this groundswell movement, we're equipping people with the right tools, we're linking them with the right help, we're trying to do as much as we can. What we realize is that the government approach needs to be there as well. Mm. They have to meet us halfway. And it's the same in every country. I think it's, I think it's one third of countries don't even spend 0.3% of the health budget on mental health. Like this is the Cinderella story of all health budgets worldwide. And it's so devastating to realize that, yes, the market, the likes of Keep Happy, we are demanding change. We are out on the forefront. It's the likes of Patagonia, the B Corp, who are announced as the environmentalist heroes of 2019 by the United Nations. It's the likes of companies who believe in the social mission as much as they believe in the profit mission that they are able to create change. So that was kind of a very long-winded answer, but it's like... But a good one. <laughs> well, thank you. And taking government out of the equation, what about businesses uh, or business and enterprise? Have you gotten the backing there? Because I know that Keep Happy has been on something of a roll with awards. You had the, the Social Innovation Award. You, you've been working with Y Combinator. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so actually our most exciting award is I'm going to San Fran next week because we got uh, selected as the EMEA finalist of the Headstream Innovation Labs, which is powered by Melinda Gates. So oh, very nice. yeah, we're really excited about that because it is a position where we mm. can create the most change. Um, so when we look at corporates, because that is part of our founding story, 
the other side with an act, the B2B product. B2B, yeah. um, we are so careful with this because we want to protect employees' integrity. One in five employers have gone on record to say that they won't hire someone with a mental illness. Mm. And we are in a position where we collect a lot of very delicate data that we do protect with all uh, with all intentions because data is one of our USPs. Data protection is one of our unique selling points. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we look at corporates, we are developing a corporate product. We are developing software that we are currently pilot testing because the issue is 71% of employees are hiding the truth about their well-being to their employers because of this issue around the response. The mm. stigma is so severe that employers are nervous to talk to employees about their well-being. And in Ireland alone, I believe IBEX stated that it, it's costing companies a total of 1 billion euros every year on employee and wellness. Each employee in Ireland costs 818 euro a year in unwellness in the workplace. So when we approach corporates, we're saying this isn't just a culture issue in your company. This isn't just a productivity issue because your employees are less productive when they're unwell. But this is actually impacting your finances. You need to take this issue seriously. So it's really exciting that we're having companies come to us and say, how can we improve our employee well-being? And we provide quite a, a unique approach to this. So. And so what will happen in San Fran then next week? Yeah, so it's really exciting. Um, It's with Headstream. It's a second Muse and Pivotal Ventures initiative, uh, as I said, backed by uh, Melinda Gates. And the whole mission is to figure out how to positively impact the youth of America with their mental well-being and then also how to bring external forces into that. So it's a really, really exciting program. And like, I, I can't believe we've been selected out of EMEA, like, to represent such a huge portion of the world with just our huge tiny achievement, yeah, <laughs> just really. our tiny little startup, it's it's mind blowing. Do you think you would you you personally and the app Keep Happy? Do you think you'd be where you are now without your own personal passion for this? No, myself. So my co-founder also has a, a personal history with mental illness, and unfortunately, one of his family members died by suicide. And when we pitch ourselves. Because when you're a startup, you're pitching yourself more than your idea and your concept and your product to investors. People always ask us, like, why are we unique? We aren't specialized. We aren't, mm-hmm. we aren't interesting. We aren't unique. But the thing is, our passion. We're here not necessarily to bring Keep Happy to the world. We're here to solve the stigma around mental illness. Mm-hmm. We're here to solve the stigma around mental health. We're trying to create a lasting change for the mental health communities and really impact them in a tangible way. We're here to equip people with the tools that will help them look after their mental well-being. And we're not here to solve, like we're not here just to promote Keep Happy, but we believe that Keep Happy is the solution. We believe with all our hearts that this is a solution and that passion, that passion for solving this Mm. problem and our belief that Keep Happy really can help people is what sets us apart. A lot of people um, in this studio and indeed in that chair uh, talk about the VC journey. <coughs> Excuse me. The VC journey, the journey to try and get funding, etc. And how difficult it is to take rejection and to take knockbacks again and again and again. Um, I'd imagine that's even harder when it's a passion project like yours. And even harder again when you're dealing with stigma as well. Mm. I believe I read somewhere that you heard a VC behind closed doors refer to you as suicide girl. Yeah. Yeah, that can't have been easy to deal yeah. with that kind of stigma. Yeah, it's it's been definitely a tough journey. Um, we're very lucky with the angel investors that we have on board. Uh, unfortunately, one of them was personally affected by mental illness. Uh, there's been they have uh, a very strong passion to support us because of their personal associations with mental illness. So we've been very lucky with the investors that we've had to date. Um, And yes, we are currently looking at VCs. We're in talks with them. We're getting ready for our next funding round. And it is terrifying in Ireland, the stigma around mental illness. But it's amazing because it's made us more resilient. Mm. Every time someone tells us no, we want to understand why they said no and prove them wrong. So yes, those setbacks are awful. And yes, when you're so personally and intrinsically like connected to your company like keep happy is more than just a startup it is part of my myself and my co-founder's identity now it's in our blood mm-hmm. and yes getting those no's are just so tough but at the end of the day if you can figure out why they said no and exactly as i said prove them wrong or solve that issue or do better and be better 
you, you can just change mm. the world. So, Well, let's move away from the no's and on to the yeses. <laughs> Tell me about your, who is funding you? How have you been funded so far? Yeah, so we've been very lucky that we won a few awards and grants. So we got some funding there. We ran a Kickstarter campaign that was successful and we got some funding there as well. And then we raised 250 in our pre-seed with angel investors. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so we've had a good bit of funding. We're very lucky. And what is the plan for 2020 on that front? Yeah, so we're kind of figuring it out at the minute. Um, we, we've got amazing, amazing help from all of the team in Dogpatch Labs in the CHQ building. They, That team has just been so supportive the whole journey um, in guiding us and advising us. Um, so we're just kind of playing our, our cards at the minute, but we are looking at impact investors because we are a social enterprise. And typically that means looking at London, Amsterdam and San Fran. That's kind of where... We're looking at the minute so okay you're never going to be off a plane by the sounds of it yeah and that really upsets me because of the environment but we're trying to be tactical so we kind of do it in lumps but yeah mm. it's it's good and how do you keep on top of your own mental health then when while while jet setting and running a business <laughs> and generating funding yeah it's a bit chaotic um my co-founder always says that we were too busy looking after everyone else's mental health to look after our own mm. but i i do have to take a lot of care of myself because i do have that borderline and i do have ptsd so i regularly go to therapy i do a lot of journaling and workbooks and i love running so between those kind of things I take a lot of care of myself but I still get burnt out I still get really overwhelmed uh two weekends ago my my uh, partner and my uh, my co-founder basically threw me onto a plane we're like you need to get out of this country and they deleted slack and my gmail and everything off my phone Detox, yeah and like I was like shaking like holding my phone being like I just have to send one more email but <laughs> yeah. if you had last question for you if you had yeah. one tip for Anyone out there, we mentioned two and three, suffering mm -hmm. in silence. Mm -hmm. So if you had one tip for anyone out there who maybe is suffering in silence or maybe might watch this and think, I wonder if I need help or yeah. I wonder if how I'm feeling is normal, what would you say to that person? So it's really hard because I wouldn't have listened to anyone telling me how to do this when I was one of the two and three. Because I think when you are one of the two and three, you're in such denial about it. Mm. You're like, no, like I was self-harming and I was like, no, I'm not mentally ill. I'm not in a hospital. I was doing so much self-abuse and I was like, but no, I'm not ill. I'm not ill. So I think it's really hard for someone to hear anything I could say. But I think the thing is, if you see yourself doing something or thinking something, or acting in a way that would concern you if a friend did it or said it or acted in that way. That usually means you should talk to someone about it. Just voice it out and see if that triggers anything or if that means you should get help. Because I really think like I normalized my behavior so much. Like I normalized. Like How can you normalize self-harm or suicidal ideation? But I thought that was normal behaviors. But if I had seen a friend do that, I would have been like, no. Let's get you help. So I think that kind of putting it in someone else's shoes is quite helpful. Good advice. And thank you for sharing. Thanks so much for being thank with you. us, Amy Louise. And best of luck. <laughs> thank you so much. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. Well, I'm back with Maura and Anne, and we're almost out of time. But before we go, of course, we're going to bring you our one to watch for this week. The who or what has caught the eye of my guests and why. First to you, Maura, what's caught your eye? I, I'm really kind of interested in a company called Fulfill. Um, many you know, of, your, of your viewers will know the bars from mm -hmm. every coffee shop that they can think of and, and supermarket. Um, and I had recently the opportunity to spend time with Brian O'Sullivan, who's their managing director, and he's an IOD member. He's just completed our charter director program as well. And he kind of took me through the business. Really kind of recent startup, but the growth internationally has been phenomenal. I mean, they're now supplying markets in 33 countries all over the world. Um, and what really impressed me was their ability to um, attract really kind of key distributors in very big markets like the States and the UK. Um, I, I'm just amazed by them because I think traditionally um, the product in, in that market was very poor mm -hmm. in terms of kind of yeah. from a taste point of view. Um, and they've really um, upped the game there. So, you know, they have really quality products which taste really, really good. Um, I know I buy a lot of them in my house for, for, my, for my sons uh, who are gym bunnies. And I just think it's a really extraordinary company. 
I agree with you. I'm a complete mm-hmm. fan of Fulfill myself, so I uh, won't be disagreeing with that. And what about you? What's your one to watch? So I, I suppose mine is more technical. So because we have been working in the area of uh, behaviour and psychology with, with Chasing Returns, um, and we've recently partnered with a neuroscience uh, uh, consultant in New York. And so we are looking at what's happening in the area of uh, personal development um, and combining neuroscience with psychology, with machine learning and AI, um, so that um, people can learn to be their best self. So as much as, you know, you come out of a meeting and you go, oh, why the hell did that happen or whatever, being made aware before you go into the meeting that you're at a high stress level or maybe you're, you know, decision fatigue because it's the end of the day or whatever, being aware of that nudges you to better behavior, right? And so there's applications for, you know, us in the business world, but I think there's great applications for this in the area of trying to bring, say, people uh, on the autistic spectrum into the workplace because people on the autistic spectrum are just, they're like us, except their range can be much broader in terms of nervousness and Mm -hmm. difficulty with social engagement, etc. And having a kind of a guide to get anybody through that is a great idea. Mm -hmm. And using it for something like um, bringing more diversity and helping uh, people on the spectrum into the workplace Mm -hmm. is a particular interesting challenge that I think is one to watch. Mm -hmm. And kind of an untapped market, well, maybe not untapped, but a big market in the sense of, you know, not just autistic people, that could be a benefit to any non-neurotypical. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Daniel Kahneman's famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which taught, you know, he was the person who invented behavioral science. He is now in his 80s and he is working with good decision making in business um, exactly around the space. So it it, it is new and it is, uh, you know, he has evaluated the average, you know, performance of middle management and a chief exec will say, you know, I think my guys are right about 70% of the time. Mm. And it turns out to be about 25% of the time Mm. that people are making optimal decisions. Right. And so being able to hone your optimal decisions, even from 25% up to 50 has a massive impact on the bottom line. Okay, I love that both of your one to watches, both of your one to watch uh, are vastly different and yet kind of the same. They're both about being your best self or being a better self. Yeah. So uh, there was some nice synchronicity there, which is wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us, Maura from the Institute of Directors and of course, Anne, CEO and founder of Chasing Returns. And we'll see you both soon again, I'm sure. Thanks very much. And that's us all done for this week. Thanks to my guests, Maura Quinn, Anne Hunt and Amy Louise Carton for being with us. Thanks, of course, to you for watching and thanks to AIB for backing the show. Next week, we'll be talking about scaling digital companies. You don't want to miss that. So why not hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube? You will also find us on LinkedIn and Twitter with the hashtag All In Business. And I will see you next week. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.